So here's the question I have for you. Who's, who's the most powerful person that you know? Just think about that. Who, who is the most powerful person that, that you either know personally or you know of? Uh, I thought I had that pretty well determined when I was in sixth grade. I, I had that figured out pretty well. I, I thought I knew what power was all about, and it had nothing to do with me. It had everything to do with a guy who was in my grade at uh, my, my elementary school. His name was John Tuning. Uh, John was a big boy. He had a lot of uh, uh, charisma about him, sort of in a negative way. He uh, had a gang. We call them gangs. We call them posses now, I guess. But he had a group of people that would follow him around. And after lunch at Nathan Hale Elementary School, we would all go out to the playground, this half-acre cement-covered playground, and uh, we would play and, and play basketball and do other stuff, run around, talk. But John Tuning ruled that playground. He ruled it. And uh, I was uh, not in, in his physical stature at all. I was one of the uh, youngest ones in my class, and, and uh, this massive physique that you see now was not present at the time. Uh, I, I was just a little scrawny kid. You know what my goal was? My goal was to fly under the radar and avoid John Tuning at all costs. He was power personified. So later on uh, that year, summer vacation came, and uh, I realized uh, over the course of time that John Tuning just lived about a block and a half away from me. The good news was Bancroft, this very wide street and, and well-trafficked street, uh, separated me from John Tuning. So I, I just was uh, very careful through the summer. But one day, it was a morning of all things, I went around the corner of my house down Auburn Avenue, just turned left on Freeman. As I turned the corner, there was John Tuning standing with a bunch of his, his friends, his gang. And it was one of those things where I had to walk down the street and it, I knew that if I turned and ran that they would run after me. So I just thought I'd just go ahead and, and I was stuck just to see what would happen. And of course, they were staying a little bit to the side of the sidewalk. As I walked by them, they began to surround me, just got in a circle around me. That wasn't a good sign. And uh, John Tuning then came in the middle of the circle and he looked down on me because he was quite taller than I was. And uh, he said, you know, I don't like you very much, which he'd never talked to me before at all. I couldn't imagine what I'd done to John. And he said, I think we need to fight. And I said, well, I don't. <laughs> and he ignored that plaintive cry. And he began to just sort of push me around, slap me a little bit with open hands, and then shoved me down on the ground. And his gang just burst into laughter and walked away. It was totally humiliating. It wasn't very physically damaging, but it was really, uh, it was really uh, a, a devastating thing that happened to me. Now, in retrospect, and because of my profession now, I'm sure John Tuning uh, was, was having self-image problems, and he didn't <laughs> want to deal with his own insignificance. But I think if I'd have told him that, I don't think it would have been very impressive to him. <laughs> John Tuning was more powerful than me. That's what I figured out. Now, it's never appropriate to use power or force abusively, obviously, and I certainly wouldn't condone that behavior. But I will tell you that it began me thinking about what power really means. What does it mean to have power? We've been in a series entitled Money, Sex, and Power, and this is the final message. 
in, in uh, that series. We've talked about money handled inappropriately, wrong perspective of wealth and, and what God's perspective is. We've, we've talked about sex, the, the lies our culture tells us about sex and, and what God tells us uh, why, in terms of, of physical intimacy and why he created it and how wonderful it is. If you haven't listened to those messages, I encourage you to go online and listen to those. I, I think they're excellent. And we talked last week about power done wrong. And we listened to the words and wisdom of Jesus concerning power that was, was not handled correctly. Power done wrong says, basically, if I'm in power, I'm better than you. It says that uh, I'm really in control of you and the things around me. And it says also that I'm entitled. I'm entitled to, to behavior of people serving me. And Jesus then gives the challenge to his disciples and us that, that leads them really to true power. When he says they needed to become, to become great, they needed to become servants, servants of everyone. But how do you do that? What does that mean to be a servant of everyone? So I want us to look at a passage, perhaps familiar to some of you. It's, it's uh, Matthew chapter 5, and uh, I want to read the passage to you. It, is, uh, uh, it begins with verse 3 and ends with verse 12. Uh, this is a passage uh, familiarly known as the Beatitudes, and I would just like to, to read those to you now. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Now this is arguably, and I believe really, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached. This, this is a sermon that Jesus gives to his disciples. It's, it's familiarly called the Sermon on the Mount. He's on the Mount of Olives, and uh, it goes on. Matthew records it. Uh, it's separated into three chapters. Words that you could spend a lifetime studying and, 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 and gleaning the wisdom from. It's as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago, but the setting for this sermon was Jesus near Jerusalem uh, talking about what it means to live a life that is a kingdom-oriented life, how God wants us to live. It was a time of power struggle. Israel was controlled by Rome, and Rome was really the driving force that... that that sort of steered Israel down the course of history and, and, and controlled uh, what people said and did in, in a very sometimes brutal manner. There was a power struggle with the Herods, the, the uh, 
secular kings that, that were also given power uh, and, as the Romans would came in and oversee them in terms of the administration of the country. And then there was the Sanhedrin, the religious power of that day as well. And these groups were just struggling back and forth. And Jesus then has his ministry in the context of this power struggle. This was a contentious time. And this sermon was a call, I believe, in many ways to look at power from an entirely different perspective. Jesus used uses the word blessed to start out. It's an interesting sermon for me. And when I do sermons, I do intro, conclusion, and three points. I think that's, that sounds biblical, doesn't it, to do it that way? Not so with Jesus. Can you imagine just listening to him and he begins his sermon by saying, hey. He doesn't even say hey. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Just starts in and gives these wonderful truths that, that, that are uh, profound and deep and he uses this word blessed. It, it's the Greek word makarios. Uh, basically, what blessed means is to, is to make someone happy, to, to wish happiness on them. And that word is first used in the Bible back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God is looking at his creation. And he look, turns to Adam and Eve, and, he, and the text says God blessed them. And that's the, the Hebrew word barak, which means blessed. Uh, also translated makarios in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now I want you to note the words, blessed. So God is saying to his creation, his, his creation of man and woman, he's looking and saying, okay, this is how you are going to be blessed and be made happy. And then he uses the word subdue and rule. These are power words. This is the call that God has given his creation, us. And we are to take the power that he's given and we are to be productive with it and we are to move and ahead and do his will. So God blessed them this way. And this command was given to encourage us as human beings to appropriately take charge and rule. But the fall of man and the introduction of sin caused us to use power inappropriately. So all this power that God gave Adam and Eve all of a sudden was, was used in a, in a way that was not productive any longer. So how do we do power right? Knowing that ultimate power comes only from God himself. So let's look at three of these Beatitudes. I don't have time to do all eight. Uh, I wish I did, but I don't. But there are three that I think are particularly uh, applicable to this whole idea of, of how we use a power and, and what we do with that in our own lives. I just want to use three of them. Uh, the first one is in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they, they will receive the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? Well, the kingdom of heaven basically is where God rules. And what Jesus is saying is, is if you and I, the disciples here, are poor in spirit, that there will come a time when we can be associated with the kingdom where God rules. We will be able to share in that power. Now, being poor in spirit is not a state of being. It's, it's a choice that we must continually make if we're to truly experience God's best for us. It can be interpreted as a continual acknowledgement of our complete 
dependence on God. Being poor in spirit is to, is to continually acknowledge, God, I need you, and I'm depending on you. And the first step to godly power is the constant realization that we have no power in and of ourselves. Every breath we breathe, every muscle movement we make, every day we live is a gift from him. It's, it's, a, it's a, a gift of energy and power that comes from God himself. When I counsel, I have the privilege many times of, of dealing with men and women who are dealing with addictions. And it's a, a difficult time that, that uh, people have many times when they're using substances and, and those substances begin to control their lives and control their actions. And I will talk with people and I will encourage them if I determine that maybe that they're, they're uh, being controlled by these substances that they need to, to take some steps to rectify that, to, to become better. A friend of mine recently that, that's gone through this struggle, she, she said, when you, when you have any substance in your body that is controlling it, you cannot hear God. I thought that was a pretty profound statement. So when I encourage people, many times there's resistance. Oh, I, this is not a problem. I can do this. You know, I don't drink too much. I don't, I, I don't use these drugs inappropriately, and I can control that perfectly. And uh, many times they cannot. And they will have to come to a point, really three points, to admit, I'm an addict. I, 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 I don't have the ability to control this any longer. Then they have to come to the point, secondly, where they say, I need help. And thirdly, and probably the most important, is they need to continually remember that. Because six months, one year down the road, many times there's a recidivism. People fall back into that, that addictive behavior. So I encourage them at, in what's traditionally called a 12-step program. And Alcoholics Anonymous began in Great Britain. It was begun by a group of Christian men who, who had problems with alcohol. And they needed to come up with a system with, with, with some steps that they could take to overcome their addiction. And uh, the thir first three of those steps read like this. First step, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And then third, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to God. And a man in my office recently who just worked diligently through his own addictions, and he came to a point where uh, he said, I, I don't have the power to do it. He went into a 12-step program. But six months into this, he came to a place where he said, whoa, I can't. You know, I think I'm, I've got this down. I don't think I can. I, I need to come to counseling anymore. I, th I don't think I need to do these meetings. And he forgot that he needed to continually remember that he was powerless. Being poor in spirit means you can understand power as it's, it's meant to be. Power begins with being poor in spirit. Second beatitude is in verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Being meek is not a personality trait. It's once again a choice we must continually make. What do the meek inherit? They inherit the earth. 
Uh, inheritance is something that we receive really not deserving it ourselves and we receive by virtue of being associated with a family or someone who who favors us uh, when you receive uh, an inheritance you receive it as a rightful possession and you have once you receive it the power to use that inheritance however you wish Jesus says if you are meek you and I will inherit the earth now, the, the men and women who heard him give this sermon were probably thinking of just Palestine itself as they knew it. They were looking for an earthly Messiah. But, but the theologians over the years believe that Jesus was referring more appropriately to the new earth that one day we will be able to inherit when Jesus returns to this earth. So being meek really is a proper estimation of ourselves within the context of God's love and creation. It's seeing ourselves as we really are. I, I read years ago a uh, trilogy called, uh, the first book was, uh, I think the trilogy is called A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Richard Adams wrote it, and it's hilarious. Uh, BBC did a TV special on it, and it's sort of a quirky, funny, sci-fi kind of, kind of series of books, and, and, and the, one of the heroes, or anti-hero, is, is a man with the unlikely name of Zaphod Beeblebrox. And uh, in, in one of the books, uh, The Restaurant at the End of the Universe, aren't you glad you came to hear all these titles? Uh, the uh, uh, Zaphod Babel Rocks was, was captured and he was put in a torture chamber. And the torture chamber was entitled The Total Perspective Vortex. And in this machine they, where they put him, they, he was put there so he could see the universe in its enormity and uh, anyone who is understanding the, the smallness in light of the universe's in, in, in its enormity would immediately lose their minds and many times die. Only Zaphod Beeblerox had such an ego that he survived, right? What Jesus is saying in terms of meekness is we need to see ourselves in light of who we really are. Context of God's love and his creation. I was talking with a young man recently, he's got his doctorate in physics, those people always fascinate me. He was literally a rocket scientist. And he worked on the machine, or the, or the experiment, it was quite extensive, that just proved Einstein's theory of relativity. The news came out about a month ago. So gravitational waves or something like that. I can't even begin to explain it. But he was explaining it to me. I was nodding and smiling. And then he said, you know, our universe is just incredible. And he began to describe, in, in only a way a physicist can, the, the the galaxy that we're in and, and, and the galaxies that are around us. And, and you know, he told me Voyager 2 that they, we'd sent out years ago when it passed Pluto and was, went out to the, into, the, into the rest of, of the universe, past our solar system. They had to turn and give a shot of Earth. It's just a little pinpoint dot in light of the galaxy, just, just, uh, just a tremendous distance away. And if Voyager travels at the same speed, it will reach the next sun by 75,300 AD, and that's just the next sun. There are over 100 billion galaxies and over 100 billion suns. And when we acknowledge, when I acknowledge and embrace the fact that I must always see myself in the framework of being created by a loving God in his vastness and, and, and in his power, then I can get to a place where I can inherit the earth and return to the purpose for which I was created. I cannot tell you the number of times, though, that I try to get God down into my, my pint-sized frame, into this little box, and I forget his greatness. Humility is the gateway, Jesus says, 
to power, true power, power done right. Title of a book by Ray Pritchard I like. It's simply this, he's God and we're not. The last uh, beatitude I want to uh, look at is the last one in this list, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If we want to know power that's done right, we need to be willing to be persecuted because of doing what's right, and then we'll receive a great reward. This is just a willingness to do what's right regardless of the consequences. This is not a masochistic search for pain. It's not a passive acceptance of abusive behavior. Never should we do that. But it's a willingness to do what's right regardless of the consequences. In many cases, it means standing up to the abuser. This is one of those beatitudes where I'm going, I don't know if I want to be in line for being persecuted for righteousness sake. I don't know. But Jesus says, this is a way that you will, once again, and he bookends this beatitude with what he started with, we will receive the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, we will receive the kingdom of heaven and great is your reward in heaven. We'll receive it with great reward. Why? because it means that the truly powerful have nothing left to lose. We are willing to go to whatever links need to be gone to to honor God with our lives. My father uh, was a World War II veteran and uh, had some great stories, uh, stories that he didn't tell readily, but, but over the years we heard some stories of his war experience we also heard stories of his early years. He didn't talk a lot about himself, but it was always delightful when he did. Uh, he grew up in Northwest Ohio, a small farm town, but he uh, would go to the big city, Toledo, Ohio, to work uh, in, in the summers. And he tells the story one summer of, of him having a job of, of, of a telegram delivery boy. And, and those days, telegram was, was the, the latest technology. People received telegrams all the time, and they, they would be be fleets of boys on bicycles who would run these telegrams to, to people. My dad was one of those. He said there was a kid who worked in his group that, that was just picking on another kid, a guy that just didn't have a whole lot of power or respect. And he watched day after day as this, this, this large kid just, just absolutely bullied and, and provoked uh, th this, uh, this uh, other, other boy. Finally, my dad had had it. He was, he was probably around 22 at the time. And my dad was not tall of stature. He was about five foot eight uh, and didn't look really big. And, and this guy who was picking on the other guy was very big. And he said, finally, I got so upset. He says, I finally went in while he was picking on this guy and stood in front of him. I said, okay, you got to stop that. If you don't stop it, I'm, 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 I'm going to make your life miserable. And this guy looks down at my dad and says, I could, I, could, I could absolutely pulverize you. And my dad looked up and he said, you might do that, but I'm going to get my licks in as well. I'm ready to go. He said the guy backed down. My dad was willing to suffer in order to do what's right. It's a powerful step. So later on the summer day when I got pushed around by John Chuning, I waited for one thing, and that was my dad to return home. 
I want my dad to come. And uh, when he got home, I told him what had happened. And I remember my dad knew how to deal with bullies. And I thought, well, let's see what he does. So he, he asked me, of course, my dad didn't speak a lot. Yes, he, he said, I'll never forget. He said, where does John Tuning live? And I thought, oh, yes. I said, well, he's across Bancroft. He's on our street. And uh, our street just went another half block across Bancroft, that dead end into some railroad tracks. And I knew he lived over there. I didn't know which house exactly, but there were only a few houses over there. So we walked you know, down Auburn, across Bancroft. We went to the first house, knocked on the door. I thought it was it. And, and uh, one of the other boys in the gang came to the door. He lived next door to him. I saw the look he had when he looked at my dad. My dad could just, he could, he could inspire respect. And uh, I said, where does John Tuning live? And, and he said, next door. And I could see the relief on his face when we didn't stay there. So we, we just marched next door, knocked on the door. Sure enough, John Tuning comes to the door. And he looks at me and then looks at my dad. And, and I've never seen John look so frightened in my life. It was just joyful to me as I, as I watched that. Just, just the color just drained from his face. And my dad looked at him and said, are you John Tuning? He said, yes, sir, I am. Never heard John Tuning use the word sir before in my life. And he, my dad said, uh, did you have a fight with my son earlier today? And John couldn't, couldn't look at him. I just looked at him. I said, yes, sir, I did. And, and he said, um, has my son done anything to cause you offense? I don't know what John was thinking then, if he was trying to make something up or not, but he had the decency to say, no, he, he hasn't done anything. Then my dad said this. He said, John, can you be my son's friend? Which made me look up at my dad, like, do, do we have to go that direction? I don't know <laughs> if I want this guy my friend at all. And John Tuning, seeing you know, his, his life sentence being, being reprieved, looks up at my dad and says, yes, I can. He says, will you shake his hand? And I remember this, this big old hand being stuck out, and I'm just looking at it. And I finally take it and shake it, and he says, that's all I need, John. Walked away. Didn't say anything going home. My dad, the World War II veteran, the man who was a warrior, who saw power done wrong, taught me in that little instance what it meant to do power right. With humility, meekness, being poor in spirit. He thought, taught me that that's the way you demonstrate true power. A friend of mine gave me a sermon that was written by Frederick Beekner recently. It's called The Power of Man and the Power of God. And it's, I, I was tempted to try to memorize it and, and present it as my own. It's so good. But there is a portion at the end that's, that's just so wonderful. I just want to read it to you because I think it sort of captures what Jesus was communicating. Beekner says, so the power of God stands in violent contrast with the power of man. It is not external like man's power, but internal. By applying external pressure, I can make a person do what I want him to do. That's power done wrong, by the way. This is man's power. But as for making him be what I want him to be, this other person, without at the same time destroying his freedom, only love can make this happen. 
And love makes it happen not coercively, but by creating a situation in which, of our own free will, we want to be what love wants us to be. And because God's love is uncoercive and treasures our freedom, we are free to resist it, free to deny it, and crucify it, if, it finally, which we do again and again. This is our terrible freedom, which love refuses to overpower. So that in this, the greatest of all powers, God's power, is itself powerless. Jesus said it. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Power done right is power relinquished. When we're poor of spirit, when we are meek, and when we're willing to be persecuted because of righteousness. Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is, is one of the more unique celebrations in all of Christendom because it's, it's, it's a day where of a triumphal entry, but it's a day of irony. And you think about it. Jesus didn't need to ride into Jerusalem on a beast. Jesus walked wherever he went. But Jesus sent his disciples out purposely not to, not to find a horse or a steed, which most conquerors ride into to cities to, to proclaim the, the takeover of that city. But he looks for a colt of a donkey, a one-year-old colt, a beast that's hardly capable of supporting the weight of a man, just a little thing. And he gets on that colt once the disciples put their coats on it because it, it probably would be difficult to sit in. This coat can't, can't be steered by Jesus. It's going to have to be led. And here he is sitting on this colt, probably his sandals almost touching the ground because it's so small, surrounded by his disciples going into Jerusalem. It's almost a, it's almost a laughingly ludicrous picture. And Jesus demonstrates by that animal and by that entrance that he is totally turning power around. Jesus gets near Jerusalem. You know what he does? You know what conquerors do? They smile, they rejoice. Jesus weeps. He weeps for Jerusalem. Certainly the people cry Hosanna, and they throw palm... palm branches in his path and cloaks in his path, and they're rejoicing that he's the Messiah. But if you really want to know and have power, true power, follow the man who rode into Jerusalem on a one-year-old donkey, and the man who turned power upside down. May we be men and women who do power right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for your son. And I thank you for what he has done for us. And I pray that as we consider the responsibilities we have and, and uh, the call we have to use our gifts and abilities, that we would do those acts of obedience in a spirit of humility, in a spirit that says that you're the one who gives us the power. And a spirit that says, whatever you ask us to do, Lord, even though it might cause us to suffer in some way, 
that we will do it, knowing that the reward in heaven is great. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.